Good morning, I'm Alicia. I'll be reading the text for this morning. Uh, so you can open your Bibles or follow along in the app, um, or it'll, uh, you can follow along on the screens. Um, in 1 Corinthians 13, verses 8 through 13, it says, Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Thank you, Alicia. So great to be with you this morning and uh, continue in our series called Spillover as we just uh, navigate and unpack a, uh, a series that's moving through uh, chapters 13 and 14 of 1 Corinthians. And so if you're with us for the first time today or you haven't been a part of, uh, of the journey as we've been unpacking that, I just want to let you know, 1 Corinthians is a uh, letter that was written by someone by the name of Paul, who was an apostle. And so if you hear me refer to Apostle Paul or Paul or anything like that throughout the message, I'm not talking about some random dude. I'm actually referencing the person that wrote 1 Corinthians. Uh, he helped establish the church in Corinth, and he's uh, responding to them in a letter. And so we're continuing through on the journey, as Alicia's already read, that last part of chapter 13. And uh, as, as I was considering uh, this message something came to mind, a specific uh, story, an experience that I had while I was growing up. Um, there was a, a camp that one of our friends owned um, off of a, a lake, and I actually don't even remember the lake, and I can't remember the location, um, but it was north of, uh, of Syracuse, and I remember we would go there, and we would camp from time to time. We had different friends that would get together, and we would one time in particular, we were walking along the shore, and uh, I was a preteen, and we're walking along and kind of throwing rocks in the pond, and it's kind of this little inlet, and uh, I'm there with my father and the owner of the camp, and so the three of us are just walking along, and he's kind of talking about the area, and I don't know, adult stuff, I don't remember, um, but as we go down, I asked if I could go down by the water, and my dad said, sure, so I went down by the water, and I'm skipping rocks, and all of a sudden, I hear my dad say, Claude, and I was like, yeah. And he's like, no, no, don't turn around. It's like, don't turn around? And he's like, don't move. I'm like, okay. And he's like, I'm serious, don't move, okay? I was like, all right. He goes, I'll be right back, don't move. I was like, okay. And so him and the guy with him walk away and jog. And I'm like, I've only seen my dad jog like twice and neither of them were pretty. Uh, and, uh, and so he's like jogging away, and I'm thinking, wow, something serious must be happening. And then I'm thinking, like, what does still mean? Like, stay there. Does he mean, like, stay in this general vicinity? Does he mean, like, you know, don't move at all? Like, you know, mannequin it? Or what exactly am I being told to do? And so I'm looking around. I'm looking at the, the shore. I'm looking at the water. I'm thinking, why in the world would I have to stay here? And and wait. And so I'm waiting. And of course, you know what that's like when somebody tells you to wait, it feels like a flipping eternity, right? Like one second feels like 10 minutes. A minute feels like they've left me. 
This was, and so I loved to play pranks on my family. I know that's shocking. Um, and I loved to joke around with them and stuff. So then I'm thinking, this is a joke. And I was like, touche, dad. This is like the best joke ever. Because like, if I do move, I'm disobedient or something goes wrong. If I don't move, joke's on me. And so I'm like going through my mind. I'm like, they're just gonna leave me here all night long. Like, what am I gonna do when the sun goes down? I'm thinking all these absurd thoughts. And all of a sudden I hear some crashing, uh, which is my father running through the woods. And uh, him and his friend come back and they have a gun. Uh, It's a rifle. And so my dad has this rifle, and I'm looking at him like, wow, so this got real, you know? (laughs) This little joke elevated quickly. And uh, then he does something that's super disturbing. He's up on the top of the bank. He aims this rifle at what appears to be me. And so I'm looking at him like, really? This is how I'm going to go out? With my dad, some friend in a camp in the backwoods, I'm thinking, all right. I get it. This is what this is all about. Stay right there. We didn't bring the gun so you wouldn't get concerned. You die today. And so I'm looking at him, and, and he's aiming, and I, I could swear that he's aiming at me. And if you've ever had a gun pointed anywhere in your general direction, it's unnerving, to say the least. And he's like, don't move. I'm like, okay, I got it. And he's like, hang on. And he looks at his friend. He goes, you take the shot. And I'm thinking, be a man. If you're going to kill me, look me in the eyes. You brought me this far, Father. End it yourself. You know, and, I'm like, and so he hands him the gun. I'm like, is that dude a good shot? What are you doing? What are we about to shoot? What's happening? He's like, quiet. Don't move. I'm like, for the love of God and all that's holy. And so he's aiming, and all of a sudden, crack. And I'm like, huh. And he shot me. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Amazing. I'm like, ah! Blood squirting out. No. No, he didn't shoot me at all. In fact, it looked like he shot nothing. I heard the loud noise. I jumped, and I'm like, can I move? And he's like, yeah, yeah, no, you're you're good. And then he walks towards me, and he comes down, and he bends over, and he grabs the tail of about an eight, six to eight-foot snake that he pulls up. And um, it's a a rare, I don't know if it's a venomous snake or not. Um, We killed them a lot. We know this, they bite. Um, and they had, you know, had a huge head. It was coiled. I guess it was ready to strike. I never saw it. It was just behind some grass. I didn't see it. It was coiled back there, and I had walked past it without any problem. They saw it from their vantage point, and I was scared to death, and he pulled this thing up, and I was like, thank you. Thank you for killing that thing. Thank you for not letting me get bit. I'm so glad I stayed still. You know, you start thinking about everything that led up to that moment, and all of a sudden, everything that you thought you were missing suddenly makes sense in light of the moment. And so the question I want you to contemplate as we look at this text this morning is why does it feel like something is missing? Why does it feel like something is missing? As we live the narrative that is our life, it seems like there are always moments where we're like, Am I missing something? There's, there's something missing either in the way we function, in the decisions that I, that I make, in, in the way that I live my life, in the way that others are reacting to the moment at hand. And I want to submit to you that we feel like something is missing because we lack perspective. We lack perspective. We think we see the whole picture, but in fact, we don't. We're drawn to conclusions. We make assumptions. We think... This is it. He brought me here to kill me. It went from, I'm here as a practical joke, to now he's going to kill me, to, oh my gosh, thank you so much. Have you ever thought that you're part of some cosmic joke? 
that like your life is going through and you're like, is, is God like laughing right now? Are you serious? Have you ever gotten to a place where you're like, I, I think I'm missing something, but has God brought me to this place to die? Like, is this the end? Is this where it all comes unraveled? Like, seriously, God, be a man. Like, pull the trigger yourself. It's not until we're on the other side of experiences. They say hindsight's 2020, right? That we look back and realize, oh, maybe, maybe God never left me. Maybe there was a perspective I didn't understand. Our field of sight is limited not only to our experiences, but to our understanding of our experiences, right? It's not just that, that what we experience is what we know, it's how much we understand our experience and our situations. Think about that for a second. Christian or not, believer or not, we see our life through a lens that is jaded. It's jaded and informed by our friends and families more often than not, by professors, by friends, by classmates, by teammates. They inform our perspective. And, and, I'm, and I'm not saying that's a bad thing necessarily. It's not necessarily a bad thing if you're aware that that's the reality. Knowing that you lack full perspective is the healthiest perspective you can have. Let me say that one more time. L knowing, knowing that you lack full perspective is the healthiest perspective you can have. To realize, listen, I don't know the whole story here. There's things I don't like, but I don't know the whole story. I'm uncomfortable right now. I'm confused. I don't know why. It feels like I need to be obedient in this moment, but I don't have the whole picture. This lack of perspective in the church of Corinth is what Paul is addressing here in this text. They're longing for meaning in their lives, and they believe that it's found in appearing spiritual. We just came off of chapter 12 in the previous series, and in chapter 12, there's this talk about how they're wrestling with these gifts and these spiritual gifts and how they're functioning and they're over-functioning and under-functioning, and it's just spiritual activity that they're finding their identity, and Paul provides them and us perspective this morning. Verse 8 says, love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. Perspective. As I discussed last week, God is love. As such, love is the essence of God's presence, and it will never end. As far as spiritual gifts, they're going to come to an end. Our spiritual activity, in the context of the gifts of this world, it will, they'll come to an end. We'll talk more about that in verse 10. But the, the reality of the giftedness and the purpose of the gifts coming to an end upon Christ's return, what Paul is saying even beyond that is much deeper. You see, because of the tension that the church of Corinth had, they were finding their identity, their value, their sense of meaning in their spiritual gifts. And so the message that we can walk away with today goes much deeper than simply our spiritual gifts coming to an end. It's really that which gives us identity apart from God. That which we drive our worth from apart from God. Paul's saying, it's going to come to an end. It will all end 
at some point. In verse 9, he goes on and he says, For we know in part and we prophesy in part. This idea of in part, it means literally bit by bit, piece by piece. That, that perspective will increase. We will know more. The Corinthian people believed that you could achieve full knowledge and understanding in this world. It was a society um, based on the pursuit of knowledge, right? And so they were thinking, listen, you can achieve full enlightenment here in this world. And Paul is doing a complete affront to this. And he's saying that that's not possible on this side of heaven. You will not know all things. You will not have full awareness on this side of heaven. Luther, uh, a theologian, argued that God provides enough clarity about Scripture for us to simply take the next step. Isn't that an interesting perspective? You'll understand the things of God enough to simply take the next step, to be obedient in the next moment. Don't move. Okay, <laughs> I'm scared, but I trust you, Dad. I trust that you're for me and not against me. It's really hard to trust you right now. This is taking longer than I thought. Where'd you go? Are you still here? Do you still love me? Is this a joke? Are you going to destroy me? It's interesting because the truth is we hate everything about that. We hate everything about the idea that God fully knows and we know in part. We hate it because like children yelling why, we want to know. Why do I have to stand still? I, I know that I went through a phase in my life where I must have asked my parents why all the time. I only know that because I've seen every human child do the same thing. I just think there's no way I was as annoying as my kids are. Because <laughs> it's like, why? I'm like, oh my gosh. And then you find yourself turning into your parents because I said so. Like, what? Why did I just say that? How loving is that? Because I said so. But in my best moments, in my best moments, my response is, do you trust me? In my best moments, I look at my kid that's so disturbed, so awful. I say, listen, do you trust me? <laughs> yeah? Okay. Then go do that. You'll understand why after. Okay. I think it, it would help us so much if we took moments in our life to consider whether or not we're asking why simply because we don't trust. We have an idea of, of how this should play out, of what's happening. I mean, after all, we have our best perspective on our life, don't we? I mean, God, clearly, we know everything about this situation. In fact, we know how it should play out. We understand. We understand maybe better than you, God. We'd never say that. We would sound like imbeciles. But it's what we think in our mind. Maybe I'm the only one. But in certain moments, it's like, how... How does this play out? How does this make sense in the grander scheme of things? But there's something interesting that's happening here in the text as we kind of get the frustration and the childishness of, of just kind of wanting to know why. In, in verse 8 that I just read, the Greek word for knowledge there uh, that's used is actually a noun, that knowledge is a thing. And it, it's the, the word that was used in Corinth at the time. Knowledge is a thing. 
In verse 9, it changes, though. He uses a different word for know. In verse 9, the Greek word says, for we know in part. And he doesn't use that same word for knowledge. He now uses a verb, a verb that's in process, come to know. It's a process of revelation. In other words, listen, you want knowledge to be a thing that you can possess, but I'm telling you, you'll only know in part. It's a process of revelation. Knowledge is not a thing to attain. And so we get to verse 10. But then the perfect comes. The partial will pass away. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. It's not that our old knowledge will take on new form. It's that in God's presence, our former knowledge becomes obsolete. The gifts that we possess, the things that that we find our identity in, they become obsolete in the presence of God. It comes to an end. Verse 11 says, When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. It seems kind of like this is misplaced if you just read the text at face value. You're like, we're talking about knowledge and prophecy and this awareness of who God is, and then he jumps into to childishness and being a child versus being an adult. But if you consider the journey that we've just gone on to this point in the text, it makes a whole lot of sense, right? Because a child selfishly lives in the moment lacking perspective, often overwhelmed by the needs of now. It amazes me. It's like, I remember being a child and convinced that if I did not eat within the next five to ten minutes, I may die. Right? Do you remember those moments? You're like, I'm starving. And for some reason, my parents would always be like, there are people really starving. Like, that has no effect on me. I think I'm going to die. I'm one of those kids. (laughs) It's happening right now before your eyes, mother. No, it's not. You know? But it's the needs of now, obsessed in the moment. Lack of perspective. The thing that's not working out, the toy that they're playing with, and they just melt down in that moment because this is their world. This is their everything. And we, with a different perspective, are like, what are you so worked up about? Get a mortgage. Get a car payment. I mean, come on. You want to talk about real concerns? Look, I threw it away. You know, it's broken, whatever. Like, perspective the demands of why and the needs of now. It's a childish, self-centered view. But we've all grown out of that, right? I mean, certainly we don't do that, right? Or have we gotten old enough to where we do it in a more mature way, a more controlled way? Maybe we don't throw the fit and throw things to the ground. Maybe some of us do. Um, but <laughs> don't identify yourself. Your spouse already has. No, I'm just kidding. Maybe we don't throw the tantrums that we see children throw, but it's amazing how we want to know why. We want to understand why is there bad in the world? Why this? Why now? This is what I need. God, don't you understand? The tension remains in our lives. We can say it's not us, except it is. 
It's every single person in this room. Because at the end of the day, we think we know the most about our lives and we think we know best about how it should play out. We just need God to catch up. (laughs) God, if you just work things out the way I want them to work out, then you'd see that I'm right. Here's the amazing news. Love dethrones self. We can can try and be selfless. If you've ever been married or in any relationship, you know that lasts what we call the honeymoon period, right? So selfless. I love you more than I love myself. No, you say goodbye. No, you say goodbye. (laughs) And then that comes to an end. And you're like, yeah, I think this is about me a little, right? Because the honeymoon period runs off. We, we come back to ourselves. And so we could conclude that, that maybe what it is that we have to do is we have to dethrone ourselves. And that will never, ever ultimately work. Because the honeymoon period of our efforts will eventually run out. We'll find something else more lovely in this world than what we find God to be. But love, God, the presence of God, dethrones self. The answer is increasing proximity to who God is, allowing him to give us perspective on our situation and our circumstance. God revealed himself as love and our gifts. If we're, if we're talking apples to apples about the text, and so I'm going to speak to Christians in the room just for a second. If you consider yourself a Christ follower, our gifts, our spiritual gifts, should function according to God's purposes so that their use must reveal God. So spirituality and our giftedness without love obscures what they were given to reveal. Think about that for a second. If we're at a place where we say, oh, my giftedness is for me, it's to make me impressive. It's to make me famous. It's to make me have value. It's to wow people with my intellect or my song ability or whatever the gifting of your life may be. And sometimes we don't realize that the gifts that we have can be leveraged towards the furtherance of the kingdom. Why? Because we lack perspective. And we just think, I have nothing to offer. I mean, I'm not that gifted. I'm going to say what I said before one more time. Spirituality and our giftedness without love obscures what they were given to reveal. The reason you are gifted, the reason why you are made the way you are made is to reveal God to this world. And that's why when God comes back, your giftedness goes away. It doesn't matter. Why? Because in light of who God is, it's no longer needed. I no longer need prophecy. I no longer need knowledge. Why? Because I'm in the face of the all-knowing, all-prophetic, the God of love and peace. And suddenly all of the things that make me, they disappear. They're no longer of value. But they culminated in order to reveal who God is. Man, we can get so far off mission 
in this world. We can think that, that our giftedness is in order to give us a, a good livelihood, sweet bank account, the ability to retire someday, which I don't know why you talk that way if you do. <laughs> but we, we, we think that, that our, our gifts are to somehow bring us glory. And it's such a perversion of the intent of what God had is that, that you have these gifts and these abilities and this amazingness that makes you who you are so that you can reveal God to this world. And the only way you make it not about yourself is you allow love to dethrone self. You increase proximity to God so that he can empower and broaden your perspective so that you can realize you want to leverage everything that you are to the furtherance of his kingdom. To live for anything else is a ripped off version of your life. Then he goes into verse 12 that again sounds like almost a misplaced verse and yet it's the culmination of all the text prior. He says, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. There's going to be some pieces here that make a whole lot more sense to the people in Corinth than to us, and so I'm going to catch you up a little bit. Corinth produced and exported mirrors. They didn't have the ability to create glass, and so mirrors then were highly polished brass. Don't you like that? Hang the mirror here, honey. I can't hold it up. (laughs) We need to move it a little to the left. Anyway, polished bronze. And so at its best, it was a mirror reflection. Reflection versus what he articulates is face to face. I was was attracted to Meredith when I first met her. She doesn't know that she's part of this message. <laughs> no, but um, when I first met her, we were, I was traveling with a ministry team, and uh, I saw her from across the room, and I was like, how are you doing? <laughs> and so uh, I was waiting in line, and she worked at a, at a camp and conference center that we were uh, scheduled. Her parents actually managed the conference center that we were scheduled to be at, and um, there were about six to 800 students there, and we did like a, a ministry production while we were there to reach the kids and um, do spiritual stuff. And so I'm waiting in line, and I'm looking at Meredith, and, and I like everything that she does. I mean, like, look at her hold that pen. She holds a pen better than every woman I've ever seen before. You know, and so I'm, uh, I get up to, to talk to her, and I was confused as to the way things worked. There was like a dining card that you, you turned your cash over so that the kids didn't have to walk around with money. And it was this thing where you would stamp it. And so I won't go into a lot of explanation because it doesn't matter except for I was confused. And so I said, I'm kind of confused how this goes. And she just looks at me because clearly she gets hit on a lot. And so she looks at me like, Egh. she's like, what's there to understand? You give me money, I give you a card. It's pretty easy. I'm like, you're so nice, too. Oh, my gosh. It's like an angel sent by God. No, and all of a sudden the light, and I had to say it. Anyway, and so I'm standing there looking at her like, oh, my gosh, I've really made this woman angry. And uh, someone comes up and goes, oh, no, no, he's on a ministry team. He doesn't, he doesn't have to. And so that means, unbeknownst to me, all of my stacks, uh, snack stuff is free. So, and so she goes, oh, you're on a ministry team. So go right ahead. I love that I have a microphone and she doesn't. But, and so she just, in order to understand the context, you know, 
She's just been kind of hit on all week long. There's three weeks of camp. And so here's another week of another 600, 800 people coming there. And I'm on a ministry team that unfortunately, historically, kind of was full of themselves. And so they were there. There's six to 800 kids that want their autograph and all that chaos. And so she's assuming I'm just kind of full of myself. And so I think, wow, that girl hates me. And so I walk away. And uh, we have some other interactions that are hardly worth the entire time, although it's a great story that I would love to tell you when she's not around. Um, just kidding. No, she has a lot to contribute to it too, which is funny. But there's, there was this moment. There were two moments, in fact. There was a, a moment that I thought, wow, this girl really, really dislikes me. And there's a whole mess of things that happened to culminate to this moment where two ministry teams went to a restaurant and uh, I walk in and I'm one of the leaders of my ministry team and uh, I go and I see the leader of the other ministry team and he's sitting in a booth. It was at a Shoney's, if you know what those are. It's like an Applebee's. And so I walk over and he's sitting there with a drink and he has another drink that gets delivered and as I'm talking to him, I take a drink, a sip of that drink and I go, I'll just order another one for whoever this is. Like, you know, it's not a big deal. And he goes, uh, it's Meredith's. I was like, who? He goes, Meredith. I was like, oh no, that girl hates me. And so I was like, just don't tell her I did this because she's going to think it's like some type of ploy or whatever. Like, I will order another drink. She will not know. It'll come to her. It'll be fine. And so I take the drink and I bring it over to my table with my team. Meredith is in the bathroom. She's walking up. She sees everybody at her table with drinks. I'm the only one with mine. And I have the same drink that she ordered. And she thinks that dirtbag took my drink. And so she walks over. She goes, is that mine? I was like, what, huh? She was, is that mine? Did you seriously take my drink? I'm like, I'm ordering you another one. So she's like, no, I want that one. I was like, you want this one? She's like, yeah. I was like, I drank from She's like, I don't care. It's based on principle. That's my drink. Give it to me. And I was like, are you kidding? And she's like, no, give it to me. I'm like, wow, she really hates me. And so I said, hang on a second. And I put my finger in it. I go, now it's going to be a little sweeter. <laughs> eh? Mmm. So smooth. That'll look awesome on video. Anyway. So I for real did that, and I'm thinking, wow. And she smirked like, you cheesy, corny loser. And I thought, maybe she likes me a little. <laughs> and it was kind of this, this revelation of who it is I thought she was kind of coming to light a little bit. And then the next moment happened when I went into um, a, a store. There's like a, a kind of a store that they have on the camp. And I walk in, and she's the only one there. And I think, should I just leave? <laughs> As I walk in, I'm like looking at the door. I'm like, well, I'm in here now. And so I'm standing across this counter from her, and, and we're talking, and I'm, I'm buying some uh, postcards to send my family. And so she's checking them out, and I'm paying for them, and we start talking. And all of a sudden, this persona, this person that I saw in public, this person that, although I was attracted to, I had misconceptions about and misperceptions about. Now I'm standing face to face with her. And I'm more than just taken by her physical beauty. I'm taken by all of her beauty, of who she is. She's laughing and she's telling about the calling that she felt into ministry, how she feels like the Lord has a plan for her life since she was 13 years old. And, and I'm just enamored in this face-to-face -face moment, this, this person that I thought I knew, I'm starting to know more, and I'm more and more drawn to her. And so I hand her the postcards, and I say, um, can we mail these here? She goes, yeah. 
said, go ahead and read them. She goes, I'm not going to read them. They're mailed to your family. I was like, no, go ahead, read one. She's like, read one? I'm like, yeah. So she picks it up and says, dear mom, I've purchased this postcard from the most beautiful woman I've ever met in my life. <laughs> and I was like, how you doing? And she just like looks at me. I'm like, that's oh, true, right? And so I'm telling you that story, and I could go on because there's far more to the story, but I'm telling you that story because you know the difference between knowing someone's public version, their persona, and knowing someone face-to-face. It changes, right? The person that you thought you knew, and then all of a sudden you talk, and sometimes that's not a pretty awareness, right? Like, they're such a great person, they're such a great person, then you have a face-to-face, you're like, oh my gosh, you are terrible, (laughs) you know? But face-to-face reveals something that cannot be experienced. It clarifies our perspective. And so we all desire to be fully known and fully loved. The problem is we understand our shortcomings and our wickedness, and we think if we're fully known, there's no way we could ever be fully loved. So we have this tension. And that's what Paul is addressing right here. He's saying, listen, we see God in a mere dimly, but then face to face. That we would know God and be fully known by him. Paul says something here. I want you to hang on to that thought because I'm going to come back around to it. He says, for now we see in a mere dimly, but then face to face. Then, in the future, future tense. Then face to face. Now I know in part, current. Then I shall know fully, future. Even as I have been fully known, past? I I don't understand. Like, he's talking about future and present. I get that. What is he talking about with the past? I, I have been fully known. It's in the past tense in the original Greek. And the known part of this is deeply known. It's an intimate knowledge. It's a, it's a face-to-face awareness. It's a deeply known to be known. It's as intimate as a, as a Greek word can be used in relationship. And in this moment, this tense is actually, it's hard to explain in our English language because we don't really possess the ability to articulate it. it. The past tense actually means that this moment is attached to a single moment that has happened in the past. I am fully known because of a single moment that happened in the past. What? What's Paul talking about? You see, Jesus, he lived the life in full awareness of who his father was. A perfect, sinless life. Questioning and yet obeying all the way. All right, not my will, yours. For God so loved the world that he sent his son. And so Jesus, living this life that we could never live, he comes to this this moment 
where he's on the cross and he's paying the penalty for your sin and my sin, for your wickedness and my wickedness. And as he's on that cross, he says, Father, why have you forsaken me? And in that moment, what Jesus is articulating is that he has lost the face-to-face relationship with God the Father. That in that moment, distance has taken place and he is no longer in a face-to-face relationship with the living God. I want to tell you that that's the moment that Paul is talking about here. And it's the moment that every single one of us can look to to say, wait a second. In that moment, because Jesus lost his face-to-face, I never have to lose my face-to-face with God the Father. That I can be intimately, deeply known and fully, completely loved, not because of my efforts or because of me trying to dethrone myself, but because of what single action that took place in the past has paid the penalty and redefines my identity. Is God just a persona to you? It's just a public image. I believe God's out there. Or do you know him? Do you know him? Because as I read last week in Matthew chapter 7, he will say to those that believe in God, depart from me, I never knew you. Do you know God? Because the only thing that's stopping you is not your best behavior. It's not you conjuring up the good works. It's simply acknowledging what's been done. Saying, God, would you allow that to inform my everything? In that single past action, you and I and our wickedness and all of our childishness was fully known by God. Fully known. He bore it. And then he says, I fully love you. Just as jacked up as you are. Just as much of a hot mess as you are, you are fully known and fully loved. And it's when we accept the reality that we're fully known and fully loved that it frees us to fully love others. That should change your perspective. It should broaden your perspective and it should spill over to everyone that you meet. There should be a literal spillover of the love that God has directed towards you to direct them to others because it's not something you're conjuring up. It's something you're walking in. And for some of us in this room today, we say, it's hard to love other people. And you know what you're saying is, it's hard for me to believe that God loves me. That's what you're saying. Because if you believe that God loves you, then how dare you not extend love to others? You're a transformed person. Loved people love people. We say all the time, like, hurt people hurt people. We say that. I'm going to tell you, loved people love people. We can come to this place with this awareness of this moment of full knowledge an awareness of who God is that changes every, everything that we're about. And we can say, hmm, yeah, that's good. I got to definitely love people better. And I am not saying that. I'm saying you have to be wrecked daily by the love that God extends to you. And that when that happens, it will dethrone 
self from your life. And it will spill over to everyone that you meet and interact with. And so this morning, this, this text, as I say often, requires something from us. And we just say, man, that's, that's good. I, I need to, to love myself a little better. And I'd say, that's a skewed version of what I said. Saying, allow God's love for you to inform the way you love others. And so the application question that I want you to leave this place considering is how does God's love inform my decisions? How does God's love inform my decisions? This morning, you may have come to this place not certain what you think about God. Maybe not sure that he even exists. And so for you, as you consider the application this morning, in light of what's been said, maybe there's a a moment, something happening inside of you that you might decide to say, I'm going to surrender my life to God. I'm going to allow his love for me to inform the decision I'm going to make now. I'm going to surrender my life to him. Maybe that's your application. Maybe not. But if that's you, I want to let you know it's as simple as praying a prayer. Acknowledging the fact that Jesus died the death you deserve, asking him to forgive you of your sins, and allowing him to be the leader of your life. For others of us still, maybe we'll say, you know, I've prayed that prayer and God is my center. He's my everything. And so to you, I would say, are you using your gifts for his glory? Are you acknowledging that your giftedness is to reveal who he is and his love to the world around you? Or are you using your gifts for yourself? If you are, you're obscuring the intent that you were given those gifts for. That doesn't mean that you can't be an amazing person in the marketplace. I believe we should have solid Christ followers living their faith in the marketplace. But they should also be leveraging their giftedness and everything that they're about, ultimately for the furtherance of the kingdom. I don't know what that looks like in your environment. I don't pretend to know. It might look like rearranging some of the goals of your life. Maybe it's something as simple as signing up to serve here in this space, in this environment. So you know what? I want to I take a risk. I want to serve here. I'm going to put my hand in the circle. Maybe for some of us, we are serving and we're stewarding our spiritual gifts the best that we know how. Maybe for those of you, you have to rest in his love and realize that he knows you, that he knows your situation, and that should be enough for you to remain maybe where you are in obedience. We want God to move faster sometimes. We want to understand the why, but Maybe it's about being willing to remain. Say, okay, God, I'm available. Would you remind me of how lovely I am to you because I don't, I don't feel very worthy of anyone's love. For others of you this morning, maybe you're like, hey, Jesus is the Lord and leader of my life. I'm actively serving. I get it every morning. I'm, I'm, I'm stewarding my gifts and I'm praying that God would lead and guide and direct me. And to you, I would just say, 
What does it look like for you to decide to, to spill over your love intentionally? What does it look like to innovate the way you live on mission? I say innovate because it's like we fall into these, just like these gutters of life, where it's like even with everything going well and with correct perspective, we're just like, and so now I serve God, and this is what I do, and I just do it, like a different kind of happy hamster, right? I just go through the cycle. So I'm not as miserable as those people, but I'm still just kind of going through a loop. But have you thought about this incredibly innovative God that makes all things new, that has given you life? What does it look like to think of something that has never maybe been thought of, that you allow the Holy Spirit to reveal to you and say, wait a second, could, could I do that? Is that possible? Could I give my life to that? Could I give this season of my life to that? And I, I want us to be released to dream. I want for those of us that are committed followers of Christ to just be released to dream of the God potential of what it looks like to live on mission. That it's more than just being connected to a church, although that's important. And it's a lot more than, than just serving in a church, although that's important. But it's really saying, okay, God, whatever you have me to do, reveal it part by part, piece by piece, God, just Allow me to risk things for your glory and my joy. I want you to bow your heads and if you want, you can close your eyes. But with your heads bowed, I want you to consider what is your application? Like, what does response look like? We're going to go into a time of, of response that's going to involve song. But beyond way of responding. I want to ask you to, to consider what, what is it that God's maybe asking you specifically to do with this? Is it an innovation? Is it a surrender of your life? I, I don't know what it is, but I know that God's word requires something from us, that it's, that it's got to be more than mere church attendance. So as you consider that this morning, I'm going to just close us in, in prayer as we go into a time of response. And you'll have the freedom when, when I'm done praying. If, if you'd like to stand when I'm done, you, you certainly can. But if you want to remain seated and contemplate what the Lord's speaking to you, that's fine as well. This is response. It's a, it's a time to, to just consider what God might be speaking to you. Heavenly Father, we... We come before you this morning. We want more than just to check the boxes. We want to be a part of what it is that you want us to be a part of. Lord, we want to leverage our life for your glory. That we would be fully known and fully loved. That we would rest in that. That our our propensity to serve, our willingness to serve, that it would come from this, this endless pool that's continually spilling over because of who you are. That we're just active in serving you because of who you are and what you've done. And so we surrender. We ask your will to be done in and through our lives, that you be glorified in this place.